Thank you, Walt. Well, you know, it was uh, last Sunday morning, gathered in a much smaller group around a campfire for Sunday morning worship, and uh, just a good reminder that the, the worship of God's people is not always confined to the church building. Sometimes they take place in the wilderness, the outdoors, and uh, it's a good time to be away, but always, of course, thankful to, to be back. Well, for this morning, we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, and to give us some context, I will read 18 through 25, though much of my focus will be on 24, but let's read the, the passage together. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray one more time. Father God, and we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you for the beauty of marriage. For God's grand design in marriage. Lord, help me as I preach this passage. I need your help, Lord. Be with us this morning. May your word speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, just uh, in the past couple of months, you know, the the idea of of marriage and, and, and what the word says about it has been on my mind. Um, you know, in just the past few months, I came across these, these two different articles. Well, the first one was from the New York Times. It said this, the title read, What All the Single Ladies and Men Say About the Economy. The subheadline, Singles Who Were Stuck at Home During Lockdowns Failed to Meet Their Would-Be Fiancé in 2020. The article would certainly go on to, to tell about the impacts of, uh, in its own words, the COVID disruption had on engagement rings. And then it provides this line. In a way, the engagement ring has become a sparkly microcosm of the American economy. The bridal jewelry business is being buffeted by the delayed effects of the pandemic, rapid inflation, 
that is squeezing consumers and a growing sense of nervousness among shoppers. Well, that was one article, and it was a couple weeks later I, I heard this one from the publication known as The Economist. But they are both related. If marriages and engagements are down, it would seem likewise that this other headline was hand in hand. Well, The Economist had a headline that read this, The Baby Bust Economy, How Declining Birth Rates Will Change the World. Well, now the editors of this publication and this article in particular said this, All things considered, it is tempting to cast low fertility rates as a crisis to be solved. Many of its underlying causes, though, are in themselves welcome. As people have become richer, they've tended to have fewer children. Today, they face different trade-offs between work and family. And those are mostly better ones. And speaking about the, the populist conservative who would have a, a different view, it says this of them. The populist conservatives, says the editorial, who claim low fertility is a sign of society's failure and a call for a return to traditional family values are wrong. More choice is a good thing, and no one owes it to others to bring up children. Well, obviously, what we have before us, and, and I think this is probably not shocking to us of what we see in, a, in the secular media, is that its views of low marriage, uh, not as many engagements, can really just be summed up in the disruption of the past three years due to COVID or to inflation. And further, declining birth rates, in its own words, are not really a bad thing. In fact, different trade-offs between work and family, and those are mostly better ones. It sees these in terms of monetary reasons, uh, nothing really in, in terms of morality. Well, as a church, this should not surprise us. In fact, I think we look around us and maybe we see such headlines and maybe they become more frequently. But we know this, right? The further society removes itself from God, the more marriage and Childbearing will become foreign. And you know, we are the church, right? The church of the living God. And we need to know what his word says on, on marriage, the, the beauty of marriage, and, and the roles and the relationship of husband and wife. And that's my goal this morning, is to outlay this for you in, in scripture. And we're going to be in three different passages. But of course, it must begin with the beginning. We have to start there. And first off, we have to really see and we have to define, number one, what is marriage? What is the responsibility of marriage? And this beautiful passage out of Genesis 2 provides just that. And like I said earlier, I want our focus really for, for this to be focused on verse 24. Well, it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, when it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father, we first need to recognize that this is a growing up. 
This is a, a responsibility that the man now has in the commitment for his wife. Now, perhaps we might become confused with this passage because we look at the patriarchs or uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and say, well, wasn't it customary for the Israelites when they married to, to stay with the father? Well, yes, primarily. We might think of Jacob and his sons, right? They married and they stayed with Jacob. So certainly when this passage says they will leave father and mother, doesn't necessarily mean not living with them. It was customary for them to do so. Mainly the husband marrying a wife and going to the fall, the father, his parents, uh, living with them. But it really means in regards to not just the, the physical leaving, moving to a different location, it is leaving behind one's childish ways. The responsibility that you had to your parents is now different. And this would not negate not respecting them, not loving them. Exodus 20, 12, right? Honor your father and mother. That would not go away. But it is a growing up phase. Instead of having an independence that was really, or just a dependence upon your parents, establishes now an independence, fully relying on God. Where the man, and leaving his father and mother, becomes a provider, a, a protector, and provides for his wife. Not only that, the scripture tells us, what else will the man do? Well, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast. To his wife. So holding fast to his wife, it, it means a, a sticking to, literally, a, a, a permanence, a, a bond. Uh, just thinking in terms of like a glue like state. Now, we know the marriage given to us from the beginning was from God, and it was a covenant. It was an agreement made between husband and wife before God. So this, this sticking to this forever bond is not just based upon husband and wife agreeing to that. No, that agreement is made before God. If we look at similar passages that, that talk about covenants and agreement to uh, obey uh, the commands of God, you know, we could turn to Deuteronomy 10. When Moses is before the people, he has provided them with a law. He has provided them with the Ten Commandments. And as he speaks to the people, he says this, you are to hold fast to God and his commandments. This holding fast was obey God's command, sticking to God. So the same sort of hold fast for obeying to God is the same covenant, the same agreement made in marriage. You are to hold fast to God and his commandments, but you are also to hold fast to your wife. A permanence, a forever Tell death do you part. You know, and the agreement and, and the significance of this is that it is made in the sight of God. If you look at verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So it was, it was God bringing Eve to Adam. 
that's why, you know, in, in a marriage ceremony, right, it is, it is in the presence of God, but it is also in the presence of witnesses. Someone is there present to see this, this covenant agreement. And this is exactly what we have before us. And also notice that in the bringing, uh, he shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his singular, his wife. Not two wives, not three wives, not four wives. Singularly, hold fast to his wife. Now, what had happened? Now, we know that Genesis 2 is before the fall, before sin entered the world. But you know what? It wasn't long before Israel and and God's people departed from that. They went away from his way. They didn't cling to his commandments. I won't turn there, but I'll summarize it. In in Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, the prophet, speaking the words of God to his people, this is what he said of them in marriage. You cover the Lord's altars with tears. And why is that? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Right? Even Israel, we know, and, and even reading through the patriarchs, many of them had many wives. Solomon, I think, was 300. Right? Many failed to obey that. They didn't cling to, they didn't stick to that permanence of that one wife. Further in Malachi, it says, well, what was God seeking? Godly offspring and to be faithful to the wife of your youth. That is what God was requiring. We also see here that we are to Man was to hold fast to his wife. But also this, they shall become one flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know that from the first command, actually the very first command given to all of Scripture, Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply. Right? So this this becoming of one flesh, yes, it is. It gives specifically, right, this is the, the sexual intimate bond in marriage. To have children. Coming together to have children. As we read scripture, you might come across the Song of Solomon, and it speaks very beautifully of the intimate relationship, physical relationship, between one husband and one wife in marriage. But, but that is not all, right? It is more than just this physical relationship This is togetherness, right? One flesh, the one flesh union. So it it then takes away from self, right? The coming together of one husband, one wife, is really one way. So the individual ways, the individual desires, the individual wants are no more. They are together. Choices are made together. Choices are not decided upon, not me, the individual, but but us. It was, uh, you know, my wife and I were talking about this uh, the other day, that it is beautiful when when you see, you know, a faithful Christian couple. And and they've been together so long that they begin to resemble each other, right? 
begin almost kind of to look like each other. But their mannerisms and what they do and what they like kind of seem the same. You're like, oh, they, they are together. They are together. And, and we see it, it is the Lord, the, the Lord that, that forms this. That is why when the man saw Eve, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Right? She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Right? It is in, in a sense, um, Adam saying, you are of me. Now, you know, we can see this language, as I mentioned earlier, Song of Solomon. I'm just going to read for you a small portion of this that talks about this, this one flesh, this level of intimacy. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Verses 9 and 10, this is what Solomon said of his wife. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. You might see that language there, my sister and my bride. Well, that, that term sister is not familial. It, it, it is a term of, of intimacy this, that, that a husband has for his wife. It expresses closeness and, and permanence of relationship. This was the pinnacle of creation. Man, on, on the sixth day, God's pinnacle united husband and wife to come together to have children he, he formed this even before sin entered the world. And that is why often, you, you, you know, the, the Lord spoke of this passage. The Apostle Paul spoke of this passage. Uh, one commentator I read this week in regards to this Gen- Genesis 2 passage said this. Marriage is a human window into how Christ and his bride relate. Right, this window, this, this, this picture that people are seeing when, when they see marriage. A picture and a glimpse of Christ, how he relates to his bride. Oh, maybe this, this brings us to the next question. How do we get here? How do we get to this point where we have this, this permanence, this one flesh union, this, this idea of responsibility well, that comes to my second point in, in the sacrifice in marriage that we must take. If you will turn with me now to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. And this verse, Colossians three eighteen through 19. This is a very a simple text in, in that it just provides one verse each. One for the woman, or one for the wife, one for the husband. Uh, before I read that, I, I want to let you know that Genesis 2, right, we see God establishing this hierarchy. Right? God, in his grand design, has created marriage. He has defined it. He has laid it out for us. God, man, woman, and they are to have children. And this is not saying that, that man is superior to woman, 
right? You could read Galatians 3.28. We are all one in Christ. But God is a God of order. He was ordered when he created the world. It was orderly when he created marriage. So the man is entrusted with leading, clinging, and loving his bride until death. You know, even the Apostle Paul speaks about this order of creation. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So when we read here Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19, it says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, I know probably on initial view, uh, when we see the uh, submitting to your husbands, I know for predominantly a Western culture and maybe primarily a lot of mainstream evangelical will see that verse and, and see Paul no more than as a patriarchal chauvinist and they will want to cast that verse aside. But I want to remind us, and I, and I want to explain this before you, right? Remember, this is God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Isaiah 48. Right? This passage is for us, and I want to explain why we need an understanding of this in marriage. Well, this definition of submit is defined as one who subjects to someone willingly. A, a lovingness, a, a out of out of love, and you can say, "Well, where do you get that from?" Well, actually, this this same word "submit." If we go to our Lord and see the example that He has set before us from Luke two fifty one, right, the submissiveness that Jesus had for His parents, it was a perfect submission. He loved His parents. He did this out of ultimately obedience and love for them. Additionally to that, we can see this same sort of word used as Jesus submitted to God the Father. Right? Jesus was not in any way inferior to God. But he submitted to him willingly because that was his call. So this submission here is, is not out of spite, it is out of love. And I also want to make note that it is the woman who willingly, willingly, I can't say the word, submits. It is not that the husband makes her submit. We have to understand that. Because it says here, wives, submit to your husbands. The second part, as is fitting to the Lord. All right, and being under her husband's lead, she is honoring the Lord. This is done in a way fitting and pleasing and honoring to God. The submission would not go against God's commands or, or violate the Christian conscience of the wife. So, so this submission, let me just be clear, would not in any way demean or degrade or defile or embarrass the wife. 
It is done out of a pure conscience and ultimately, yes, in love for her husband, but ultimately in love for her king, Jesus. This is the role that honors God. It elevates the husband. Well, what about the husbands? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this term love here is is an agape love. It is not just the the one time in in the heat of passion, a a passionate love. No, it is a a sacrificial love. Maybe Ephesians 5 comes to mind, right? Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This gives the clearest definition in a sacrificial, a all-giving-up sort of love for your wife. This love pictures the love Christ has for his church and and paid that ransom, paid that price. And this is an ongoing love too, right? So we know that in marriage, disagreements happen, arguments happen, and letdowns happen. And we need, right, as men to have this, this sacrificial love. This ongoing love through, through the letdowns and the disappointments. Because what is our tendency? It says right here, right? We are not to be harsh or embittered towards them, right? See, we, we belong to one another. We are this one flesh union. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, she belongs to you and you to him. Your body is not your own. And during this love, this sacrificial love, we might have a tendency to become embittered or harsh. This should turn us to the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. Right? This love is not envious. This love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. This love does not hold on to grudges. You see, a love must exemplify Christ by sacrifice from a pure heart, from a pure motive, not grudgingly. Husbands are called to this. Now, why would Paul, in writing this, put this in place? Well, if if we move fast forward past Genesis 2... Right? What comes after that? Genesis 3, and, and we see the fall. We see how fallen man has destroyed everything. And this is what it says in Genesis three sixteen. This is what the Lord said of the wife and of the husband. He says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. You see, the fall, what happened there is that it would be a temptation for the woman to to rule over the husband. That happened from the very beginning. And what would be the tendency for the man to not have that and and as a result be embittered or harsh towards the wife? So you see, right, it is sin that has infected the, the, the perfect unity that God had ordained. So... How do we remedy that? Well, Paul gives us the example, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, he gives us our role. And when we follow along to his good commands, 
his, his rules for governing the home and the relationship between husband and wife, when we do that, we complement each other beautifully according to his grand design. Now, when this order is reversed, when our view of God's design in marriage becomes different than his created order, confusion ensues, blessings are diminished, and the family fractures. I think we see that happen in today before us. Sadly. Sadly. Well, I must move on. And I wanted to speak a little bit about singleness as well. I think this is something that, that is not often brought up uh, when speaking of marriage, and I know that this could be, both of these could be an entire sermon, but I wanted to, to, to touch briefly on singleness. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 8 through 9. I want to read this chapter, or just this, this section. This is what Paul says to the unmarried. And the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, first I want to touch on what is singleness. What, what is Paul saying of singleness? Well, first, he says it's, it's a good thing. It's, it's a good thing to the unmarried and the widows. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. If we went on further in this chapter, we would see why Paul says it is a good thing. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 and 33, it says this. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. So really, singleness is good in that he was free. Paul was, was free to serve the Lord. He didn't have the concerns of his wife or, or a family. We might know of many faithful single missionaries, maybe less so uh, ministers. You might think of Amy Carmichael, Elizabeth Elliot, after her husband had died, who went on to serve the Lord very faithfully as single but there's one thing I want to make note about singleness. One, it is not above, Paul does not elevate it above marriage. Verse 17 of the same verse, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So the conviction one had about whether they were called to singleness or marriage is really a direct call from God. Well, there's also something that we have to note. Singleness is a gift. Is a gift. 
here in verse 7, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. The gift of singleness is a gift. And that gift, I would argue, is not common. Not common. Why? Well, Paul gives us the reasons. Though it is not bad to be unmarried, but verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Right? The sexual desire for a woman. The burning of passion for another. Right? That is what he's talking about. Now I know in today's day, right, our, our society is steeped into sexual sin. At every turn, at every look. You can't even go on the internet and just look at a, a decent publication without seeing some sort of image. It's everywhere. Temptation is around. You know, I think even the same as in Paul's day and in much of church history, we might see the, the faithful uh, missionaries um, who served single while serving the Lord. I think primarily in looking at it, many of them were women. The list is much smaller if you look at men, maybe David Brainerd and, and certainly the Apostle Paul, but the list is certainly not extensive. Well, Paul says he has a remedy for that. If, if this is you, if, if you burn with passion, then it is better to get married. And singleness here, he defines very specifically, one, you don't have that burning of passion. You don't have that desire for that, that intimate relationship with another. And then secondly, your desire, as he said in verse 22, or 32 through 33, is to serve the Lord. Is to serve the Lord. That, that the hindrance is that you would serve the Lord full time. Your responsibility and devotion to him. That is why the gift of singleness is very unique. Well, I guess that begs the question, what if we don't have the gift of singleness? God provided a solution. Praise God to that. Again, if we go back to the garden, if we go back to Genesis 2, what did God do? God provided a helper for Adam. And it, and it wasn't, right? Remember, this is the state of the world. It is perfect in every way. Sin has not entered it. But God saw fit to provide a helper for Adam. Adam didn't ask for it. He provided it. He saw that he needed it. Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 through 9. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So if I speak even more specifically to the guys, you need a helper. You need a helper. If you're one of the very few that, that has this gift of singleness, and I've laid out the qualifications for that, you need a helper. I would say personally, I know I need a helper. Praise God. 
Thank you, babe. This is God's grand design. And, right, and, and we must also understand this, that those who, who burn with his passion, as, as Paul says, right, marriage is just not for the, the physical bond, the intimacy to fulfill one's desires physically. Remember, it is to demonstrate the goodness of Christ and to build up a family. That wonderful command, we cannot overlook that the very first command, the very first command that God gave humanity, Go forward, be fruitful, and multiply. And it becomes that glorious picture. When we go back to God's design, right, we are displaying the goodness of him in the world. Proverbs 18, 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Amen. Well, I hope I've laid out for you a, a couple of at least thinking points about this. Because I know that we live in a society, and I read those articles, and they're numerous, dime a dozen. Marriage is down. Singleness is up. I really think that these things have been impacted the church. And I don't think for the betterment. Well, what if you're one asking, how do do I find a wife or a husband? Maybe you do want to get married. Maybe you desire that. And maybe you're not going to have, like, uh, Isaac, you know, the Lord working perfectly to bring you Rebecca. Maybe it's not going to work out that way for you. But you know what? If you know, and you know it is God's will, right, and you need that, pray. Do not get, trust in the Lord Jesus. Pray that he will provide. And you know what I would say? If he provides you one to marry there's no point in having a really long engagement. I think marriage in our, uh, in our day and age, it now appears some sort of social status that has to be achieved. One gets through college and, and establishes their career, and they wait forever, and they say, okay, we'll finally get married. There's too much temptation in between. It's okay to get married young. Trust in the Lord. Put him first. Right, that is why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee the youthful passions and pursue righteousness. If your youthful passions are in front of you and you feel like a, you have a two-year engagement, you know, just get married earlier. It is better to serve the Lord. I want to conclude. Right, the state of marriage today, right, we know it's not glamorous. Our, our society doesn't see it as such. Maybe saw, some of us saw this coming in 2015 when the Obergefell versus Hodges decision legalized same-sex unions. I think that has, in a result, caused a decay in, in our view of, of marriage has diminished. That's why singleness is up. And now our society paints a dim picture of marriage. And, it, and I think, right, we've have, if we are honest with ourselves, it is affecting the church. I just want to turn to one more closing passage. And, you know, I, I read this, I remember a while back, and I didn't have a full understanding or, or grasping of this verse because I was 
I was thinking, is this, is this cultural? Is, this, is Paul talking to Timothy that this is a cultural thing happening in the state of the church? Well, let's just take it at face value and see what it says. It's 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 4. I just want to read it. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. In latter times, People will devote themselves to the teaching of evil spirits and of demons. And what is the result? They will forbid marriage. And notice that marriage here, God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know. You know, there's, there's, there's actually coming a day. And whether or not we are in this times, I don't know. You and I see what's happening, and certainly we have our concerns. But there will be a day when, when marriage is, is looked upon as really the greatest affront to God. Because in this passage, right, it was God who created it. Man has no way and no authority, and nor will ever have authority to define it. He will have no say. It was always originated for God, by God. Well, what should our response be to this? It is not to get angry. It is not to raise a fist with frustration and shake it at this world. No, it's to let marriage, right, in in, in our marriages, right, reflect the glory of Christ. Because every, every challenge that we see happening today, it all starts from the beginning. I don't know if we know that. But every challenge we see and every, every social problem that, that's coming, it all starts from the beginning. It always starts with challenging God from the very beginning. From marriage to environmentalism to gender identity. And, and, and we as his people, here, here is the confidence that we hold. We as his people know the very truth of God. We know his grand design. And we are that window, right? You and I, we are that window. That the watching world desperately needs to see. That we would reflect Christ in our marriages. And even if you are called as a single to commit Christ, to live as Christ is called in your singleness. We talked about if you wrestle with some things. Ask for a wife. God's goodness. Could we be that to the watching world? And then lastly, right, this points us to the the greatest message of all. Right? It is the gospel. Right? Because we, we can't achieve good marriages. We can't achieve the purpose of God without the saving hope of Jesus Christ. He's given us the gospel, the glorious gospel. He died for us, for you and me. Sinners saved by grace that we would look upon him and believe and believe. In the life that we live in this, in this fallen world, we would reflect the goodness 
and mercy and kindness of our Lord. Let us pray. Father God, I I know there's much more to be said. But Lord, we are are thankful for your word, for it is sufficient. And uh, Lord, I I pray for our marriages in this church. I I pray that we would reflect your likeness as as we lived, as you are called, uh, that we sacrifice for one another, that we see that marriage is your grand design, Lord, never created by man. It is by you. So help us, God. I pray for clarity and guidance, and we are so thankful that your word provides that. We praise you and thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.